Good morning podcast and welcome to a new episode in 2021. I hope you have an amazing day on this beautiful planet Earth and that you're ready. Today we have an amazing guest. His name is Peter Daring. He is the founder and CEO of Peak Design, which you may know for their tripods, for their capture clips, which is a camera clip that I always have on my backpacks. And he is also the co-founder of Climate Neutral, a non-for-profit that helps businesses measure and offset their carbon footprints and provides a label for consumers to recognize which businesses are actually trying to do good in this world. So you are in for a wide-ranging conversation, not only about business, but creativity and taking risk. How did he start Peak Design? What risk did he have to take? How did that backcountry ski trip actually turn things around, made him drop an idea take another one that was the hugely successful camera clip and most importantly how did things unfold and what lessons would he share with us nowadays i think if you're an artist if you're a creator if you want to be a photographer an entrepreneur whatever you want to start in your life that might feel uncomfortable right now i think this conversation will be super helpful. Now, it's going to be wide-ranging, as I mentioned, because we'll also be talking about uh, a little bit of routines and experiences that had a tremendous impact in his life. Oh, and before we get started, as a small disclaimer, I've actually never worked so far with Peak Design. I've just been a genuine, loving customer of theirs for many years. And when I heard of Peter Daring's story recently, I was like, I got to bring it to you guys. We're going to dig into a few topics. And I think you will love it. At least I can relate a lot to the entrepreneurial hustle and journey that uh, his life has been. So if you're ready, guys, let's welcome Peter to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks. Pleased to be here. Peter, we just spoke in a parallel dimensions that no one will ever hear, but just us. <laughs> and uh, before I get on and talk about what really drew me to peak design and also like just chatting with you and wanting to have that discussion. I, I saw on your Instagram bio, like I was saying that you might have some affinity towards emojis or actually the contrary. Can you tell me more about that? I was really intrigued. It is the contrary. I, I almost forget that people are probably out there like, oh, let's see what this guy's on, you know, he's on his Instagram because I own a photography accessory company. And so people probably figure I pay a lot of attention to it. I don't. I think I wrote in like 2013 when I was signing up for my Instagram account that like me <laughs> likes words and pictures, dislikes emojis. And you know what? I haven't deleted it. And it's not just because I haven't seen it there. I think it's still true. I, I, I mean, although they are growing on me here, they are, <laughs> they are growing on me in time. Uh, it seems that they're not going anywhere. And frankly, they can communicate more than words more quickly. So if there is that efficiency, I can be convinced that they have their place in this little world of ours. It's funny because, uh, so I didn't share with you in the parallel that I mentioned, but when I sent you the email after our, our live with Skylum, I was like, let me reach out to Peter and see if he's up for the podcast. And then I made sure not to put a single emoji in my email because I, I do like to put just a, a little smiley uh, here and there sometimes uh, just to lift up the tone because I don't think life is that serious. But I, you know what? I, I do that too, man. I'm, I'm a winky face guy and a smiley face guy. And I use them both with reckless abandon. I think it's time for me to update my Instagram is what it comes down to here. I think that that's <laughs> here. Uh, podcast with Pierre takes your action on your Instagram bio. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's awesome. All right. Well, what else can we get done today? Consider it done. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's see. Let's see. I think I have a, lot, a list of things. Uh, uh, but it's, I think emojis are, I totally get what you want to say with like words are, are so important. And, and especially now everything's so fast and quick. Maybe we kind of lose that, uh, not romanticized, but like deep down writing and using those skills really to express feelings and emotions. And maybe we're trying to make everything too fast, too quick. Uh, I feel that, and I, I so I I understand the philosophy behind uh, what you're you're trying to express, and and how we, especially as photographers, you know, we we're trying to hone on the beauty and like capture a moment, and it's not to mm-hmm. just like trash it into a small can and and make it disappear in an instant. Man, it's so true, and 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 frankly, we're fighting um, an uphill battle, like, and it's and it's representative in. Not just like what younger people and the youth gravitate towards, which would be like, let's, let's say on the spectrum, it's like they gravitate more towards emojis mm-hmm. because of their incredible efficiency and more toward cell phone cam, you know, pictures. Mm-hmm. And on the other end of the continuum is, you know, deep, thoughtful, full sentences that I, that I tend to try to employ. And then also like, uh, you, you know, an eighth of a second exposure, even with there's decent light, uh, with, with, you know, a full frame camera that you then go into, edit, into Lightroom and, and apply just like subtle edits to, which was my whole method of photography up until I don't know when exactly, but like it, th- this, this age of cell phones has kind of decimated one of my like, I don't know what to say. It's like it's like sapped the energy from me to interact with photography in the same way that I used to, hmm. and it concerns me. That's interesting. Do do you see it more as in uh, it's getting more? Uh, I don't know if it's the right word in English, but ephemeral, ephemer versus yeah. something that lasts. Definitely, definitely. I I remember used to having this perception that like I'm going to take a picture of. Of, of these friends of mine and they're going to cherish it because it's going to be one of the best photographs they have. Cause you know, I was one of the only guys around with an SLR and could create a focus in the background. And now it's just, it's, it's, it's less important to them because they have so many photographs of themselves hmm. um, or of their children or something like that. Um, and, but, but actually like in truth, you still can create a much better and more meaningful I- image with, with additional effort that gets applied to it. Yeah, it's um, it's in photography. It's kind of a weird thing that we've accepted or many, many people have gravitated toward a less good product, which is a cell phone image, but just with a, a much higher degree of frequency. Hmm. And so I don't know. I, I, I do think these things represent an interesting parable for parable for, you know, broader life philosophies and kind of the ways of the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like in a way it also pushes people to relearn the art of taking the time and like, because I, I see an uptake, for example, in people shooting film uh, mm. and people like wanting to print their work, which existed all always before, but now it's it kind of died off. Let's put it that way at one point, And now it's picking back up again. I feel like um, on in a way like that ephemera aspect also pushes a lot of people to try to reach something slower and and more mm-hmm. s- longer in time, if you want. Mm-hmm. 
I think you know I, absolutely that's happening, and and I think it's because you'll see a counter you'll, to to everything that gains popularity, you will see a counter reaction, mm. and that's kind of a beautiful thing about the way the world works. Um, and so, um, what is here to stay is that photography and video are incredible mediums for conveying information. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, I, I am, I'm so thrilled. Like one of the, one of the greatest joys about peak design is that we get to play in an industry that I personally care about. I care deeply about it. And so many other people care about it for so many people. Photography is their, their passion, right? They describe themselves first as even if they're not professionally, they'll say, you know, I'm a photographer. Yeah. And that's pretty cool, man. I, I'm very pleased to be lucky enough to work in this. Yeah, the, the community is awesome. It's like, it's, it's very, uh, everyone creates their identity as a photographer, creates what they want. And, and it's like, it's almost like you, your work doesn't define you, but in a way it, it kind of does. It's like, okay, what is this guy about? What does he like to express? What does he like to capture? And, uh, and I guess that's true. And it's, and it's something that's not so pushed back, not pushed back, but it's not, not so alternative as let's say like drawing or painting, um, because we can use it every single day in, in the mediums that we consume the most today. So mm-hmm. I find it pretty, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm the same way. I'm like, the community is awesome on that. <laughs> I'm happy to be part of it. Can we, Definitely. can we rewind back to something I read uh, about you and you were mentioning one of the top life experience people should have was, if I remember correctly and correct me, it was something with a bathtub um, and Pink Floyd and a laser show. Can you expand on that? <laughs> uh, bat- well, <laughs> I think those might be somewhat separate threads because the Pink Floyd Laser Spectacular is um, an immensely important event for me. I've, it's it's a, it literally is a traveling show. I mean, there's lots of ways to enjoy Pink Floyd, but if you have the opportunity to do it at a sanctioned uh, laser spectacular and furthermore i have to say if you have the opportunity to have taken some mushrooms before you do that this is this is one of the top life experiences that i think you can have <laughs> and, and, and like it is too, it was it was defining for me as a 22 year old first time taking mushrooms and really first time getting into pink floyd um you know several songs i had ne- i'd never heard the song mother which became mm-hmm. pretty much my favorite song. It was just a full-on sensory, emotional, intellectual journey jammed into uh, this this wild experience of, of psychedelics. So seriously, I, I mean, I sound probably like a bit of a loon, but thank God. I mean, psychedelics actually have caught so much um, favor in the mainstream that I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not out there. I'm not you know I'm not presenting like a like a psychopath right now i'm saying you should take mushrooms and listen to pink floyd it's a great idea that's well documented uh the bathtubs thing i don't know about that other than the fact that i am i'm the proud owner of a of a a 1999 jet setter uh hot tub Mm. and i make sure that all those parts are in great working order because i use that thing every single day that is my place where creativity just flows i just sit there and the like the thoughts every single morning are just like I don't know. It's like a fire hose, man. It's a, something about that state for me. Well, how? What about the the bathtub? Would you say like really fosters those thoughts or like creates? Do you and and how do you? If that doesn't sound too weird, like do you have a ritual or how do you like to enjoy it? 
Yeah, I do have a, I've like, you know, COVID has forced, um, well, a lot of people were into routines before, but my routine has very much become, I come downstairs in my bathrobe and I make myself a latte and then I walk out the front deck area and then walk around the house to the back of the hot tub and I get to, I'm fortunate enough to have a view here in San Francisco. So I take in the city a little bit and then out in the backyard, I've got trees and I, you know, start to feel that connection with nature. And then I crawl into a 104 degree, like it's just, there's something about the heat transfer that occurs in a hot tub. Hmm. Like I don't turn on the jets or anything like that. I'm just about like taking in that physical energy. And it's just so deeply relaxing. And my, you know, my, my muscles get, they just get wonderfully kind of soft hmm. and I'll be in there and I'll get through, you know, whatever emails have come in. We, we do a lot of work with China and Vietnam. So overnight, there's quite a few emails that I still monitor and make sure I'm up to date and I've got my calendar arranged. And then I'll just sit there and think for a good long while. I'm usually up pretty early as well. Also kind of a COVID thing. And then I come in and I'm ready to do my exercises and come down and make breakfast and start doing podcasts, you know. <laughs> and here we go. We are here now. <laughs> that's right that's awesome do you, i want i want to rewind back because like you said uh psychedelics have caught uh, i would say mainstream legitimacy uh i will call it mm -hmm. that that where you don't sound too crazy to talk about it nowadays uh do you feel mm -hmm. that it had any impact in terms of creative exercises or like creativity in your life or i'm, I'm kind of yeah I'm, i'm very curious about that question because yeah I, I, I do think so. Not in like the direct, um, like I never had any epiphanies of an actual product that should exist or, or really great innovations on specific products that ought to exist. But how I relate my mushroom trips to the feeling of peak design is like there is so frequently, you know, typically when, when, When I've had a mushroom trip, I'll be out in nature and mm -hmm. I'll have my camera and my drone with me. And there is there is a feeling that like this is I'm doing what I love so much. Like these mm -hmm. are the, the repeat feelings. It is this combination of music because I've always got my headphones on, you know, and, and listening to music that I care about very much and nature and then capturing the nature around me and beginning to tell the stories of 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 myself of my life of peak design of these products and so i kind of have these visions of um you know the the few bands that i've really turned to especially during a mushroom trip that all kind of combine to give me the sensation of peak design mm. and it's somewhere in the uh pink floyd alt j my morning jacket and then a few other songs by this woman named eva cassidy who's just the most beautiful singer Um, that that I frequently turn to, and those things kind of mesh into this vision I have about this company that um, I and my teammates have built over the. And it's a beautiful feeling. I find it's one of the properties, kind of like to to bring us to bring kind of everything that's around us into one in a way, or just make us aware of how everything is kind of connected in a way. Um, mm -hmm. and after mm -hmm. it's, it's up to the individual to see the, their personal journey and, and, and the, and the whole thing, uh, just for the listener, <laughs> I just want to a little warning. If you do want to experience those things, I highly encourage you to find 
guides or most importantly document yourself there's like really great books i can list some below if you want just don't go too wild alone that's just my recommendation if <laughs> just want to make a public announcement please be careful <laughs> it's, it's it's your brain and not everyone is reacting the same way uh your that's psyche true. is always here to remind you so don't be afraid uh <laughs> tell me uh, i want to go back to like the capture uh, your first clip, how it came to life. And before that, I want to tell you just, I ran into the capture clip. So guys, we're talking about the capture clip is the thing I always have on my backpack where I attach the camera. Whatever of you've seen me is in the videos. That's, that's basically what we're talking about. So that specific product, Peter, I remember, I think I got my hands on it the first time, probably in 2016, I would say. It was the first version no the second version the first one was really square the second one was kind of like more rounded and, and larger mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. I've, I've had it for a long time always loved it and I, I remember specifically when i got it i was like before i had like a holster um that would be like kind of a belt and you would slide the thing it was it was great for weddings but i had nothing for the backpacks and i was like this is really frustrating i shared exactly the same frustration the straps was not working out i was on the world tour and the feeling i had was like wow i don't know who thought of that but i'm like why has it not been invented like 20 years ago this seems so yeah. simple in a way and so obvious that you everyone needs one that i was like huh that's great and ever since i've always had it and and always like played with it or now i have the v3 i think uh so i literally mm -hmm. have so my backpack has one on each side and then awesome. my other backpack has one and i just switched so I, because i have the camera for shooting and the one for filming so i always have two but tell me a little bit for anyone listening who doesn't know the, the backstory what's what's kind of the the, the level zero of of what happened here and i think the most important is where were you before peak design what who were you sure. as an individual well uh i grew up in minnesota um i was a son of a nurse my mom's a cancer nurse my dad is a firefighter um i went to school in the neighboring state of wisconsin um and got a civil engineering degree and then started at, and Studied in Rome when I, I, I think it's important that I studied abroad. It was just a eye-opening experience for me. I, it was my first time out of the United States and I was like, holy shit, the rest of the world, A, it exists and B, it's really cool. <laughs> like I, I really liked Europe. It was spectacular. Um, and then, uh, after, um, after school, San Francisco just kind of beckoned me. It was the city in the United States that felt most like Europe, mm -hmm. um, to me. And um, upon getting here, I was in construction, and I loved construction. I still love construction. I, I build a lot of projects myself. Um, it's kind of my favorite thing to do is work on my home and build furniture and, you know, um, still to this day. But the problem with construction is that it's such a low-margin business, and it's just, it's, just, it's just such a grind. It's such an incredible grind. Hmm. And the hours are really, really long, and it's not very progressive with things like personal freedom and and like the value of a life like they yeah so um i two years into that or after i finished my first project i went on a four-month leave of absence from work and 
On that, I traveled to Southeast Asia and India and New Zealand and Australia. And, you know, by that time, I had gotten very into the the hobby of photographer, mm. of photography. And when I was on that four-month trip, you know, I kind of fancied myself a storyteller. I wrote an ex- extensive blog and, and took, you know, um, thousands of images that I did my best to cull down and curate and bring back to um, this audience. And, like, you know, this was before... It's 2008, right? Mm-hmm. It was a it was a Tumblr blog, and I had a lot of people that were following along and reading it, you know. And it was on that journey of always having a backpack with me because that's what you do when you're traveling, but also always having a camera and wanting to have it out, but having the neck strap be the only <laughs> way to do that. It was a pain in the ass, so I started experimenting with a carabiner on a hook. Like, you know, on the traditional camera straps, the, the ladder lock, there's a little short section of webbing. Mm-hmm. Put the carabiner through there and lashed it to my backpack. And it was better than the neck strap, but it was rattling around. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, rigid attachment to a cam- to the backpack strap would be better. How would you accomplish that? Interesting. You might put it like the, what is the top of a tripod hmm. onto your backpack strap? And, hey, I think that would work. Um, so I kind of put that idea aside for a while. Um, and this was 2008 and, you know, I've always been very into energy and wanted my career to be meaningful and and as vis-a-vis the world and the clean tech movement that was happening. And so after I came back from my travels, I knew that construction wasn't going to be it. I started, um, applying to mechanical engineering programs and like energy policy programs. And really wanted to hmm. dive into energy and make that my focus. Um, I had also thought of this idea for a regenerative brake mechanism for electrified trains. Hmm. It was it was interesting. I was I was in I was in New Zealand. I think it was Lake Wanaka that I was on a hike and I was overlooking it. And there was this really I mean, just exceptionally beautiful lake. I don't know if you've ever been to New Zealand, but not yet. It's amazing. And there was this little outcropping of land that like. You could have put the most beautiful little village there. Um, you know, n- not that not that it should have a village. It, obviously, keeping wild places wild is wonderful. But I was just imagining, could you have this sustainable community hmm. living there? You know, it was like the hill was south or north facing, so it had because we're in the southern hemisphere good sun. And I was thinking about how you transport goods, and I was imagining building a tunnel to access this, like. Um, and then evacuating the tunnel, which hilariously sounds exactly like the Hyperloop um, that <laughs> Elon Musk uh, was putting forth eventually. Um, and I was imagining, you know, these these goods movers going back and forth, but each time they have to slow down, why lose that kinetic energy? There must be a way to preserve that and then mm-hmm. similarly send, send that cart back. And I really just got obsessed with this idea of like, gosh, like a spring or like a giant rubber band could could solve that issue. One thing led to the next. And before I knew it, the idea had morphed into capturing the energy from electrified rail. Hmm. And like I spent a year and a half while still working as a construction engineer trying to make this um, this dream of recapturing energy from the world's subways come to reality. and. A year and a half into that, I'm quitting my job. I'm ready to pursue it, but it start. I'm starting to like, you know, hit the walls of like, okay, great idea. What? 
you're going to install these things in subways and you know and it was just it was like oh this is a little bit naive isn't it <laughs> um and fortunately my i was on a backcountry ski trip with my girlfriend at the time who would <laughs> who was a new girlfriend and who would very very soon become the mother of my of my child um uh which i did not know at the time um but she was like you know what this idea for the camera clip sounds like it might be a better thing to work on than the train idea and she was right and i started pursuing that um quite immediately and yeah it's a it's a far cry from saving the world's energy problems but um the funny thing is that since the formation of climate neutral in 2018 i actually feel like as the head of a successful product company that makes things and ships them around the world i think that the way that we have handled our carbon footprint mm -hmm. um, could have a much more far-reaching positive benefit on the world than, you know, capturing the electricity from slowing trains. Do you think it's so. it's linked to the lead by example or like change what you control, what you can control, and then in a way it will splash positive uh, ripples around? Well, it's certainly lead by example. Um, I, the notion that companies should offset their entire carbon footprint is not something that people were talking about, hmm. shockingly, in 2018. I mean, that's why we made the label exist was because it was like, where do I sign up for the label that says we paid for the eradication of all the carbon we're responsible for? Yeah. It didn't exist. Um, so we made it. And I just got off... Uh, a, a, a session where like I, I i think that this is going to become table stakes this hmm. is going to be the norm if you want to be a responsible company in this day and age and you don't pay for your car like to 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 eradicate your carbon yeah get out of here like it's it's the least you should do i follow you a hundred percent on on that thought process because it's something you see when you might grow a company or your own personal business or anything you realize that at one point you you just like kind of exceed your personal needs of survival and you're like well what what's the point am i supposed to buy a a yacht and <laughs> and a plane is that going to change yes, much in my life supposed to buy a yacht. That, <laughs> that's the main thing we need to be striving toward but and, after the yacht then what then what exactly um And also like with internet and, and the access you have to people who actually went to that level or the books or everything, you, you kind of realize that it doesn't matter how much or how many things people amass at the end of the day, they, they might still still feel very meaningless, right, in their life. And and it just asks the question, okay, if you're building things, how can, that's the question I ask myself, how can I have it ripple positively around not just the community but also the the environment that's that that I'm living in and it's a forever question I think and it's good that it's forever because it it will push us to constantly ask ourselves questions and grow and whether it's just a digital product and we might think oh it has no impact well it kind of does uh apparently mm -hmm. uh <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's like I th I find I find like seeing companies like you like peak design and, and also certification you create, like kind of help set a good trend for future companies to come up. And it's almost like, you know, like Patagonia has been doing so well recently, but then when you look at them, they haven't changed in 20 years, like in, in, their, in what they're thinking and how they're doing it. It's just, 
they've been setting so many trends and other companies have been trying to catch up at one point that it just emulates that positive effect. Whether it's for the good reason for many of them or not, as long as the outcome is positive, I, th I find it's, it's, it, it, it outweighs the, the negative side, um, which... Yeah, a millionfold, yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, I went on a, on my own rant here, but uh, it, I'm very happy to see what you guys are doing and and how you're doing it, most importantly, because I think you're setting a good trend for, for the future generations, at least. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, Patagonia is obviously, like you say, um, been critical in setting this trend. Um, I remember when I first let my people go surfing, Yvonne Chouinard's book about, about his business. I read it, I think, in 2016, the fall of 2016. And it was funny because I... I, I wasn't like deeply studious of Patagonia or anything like that. Mm. Um, in fact, I hadn't heard of Patagonia even by the, like I only heard of it after I started peak design and I had been living in California for six years. I have no, like, I can't imagine the world in which, I mean, either my head was in the sand or, you know, <laughs> I've never been the trends guy. That's for sure. But um, in any case, I read the book and I just found myself nodding nodding along, not in like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm like, that's what Peak Design does. That's how we think about these things. And so it, it really has, um, it was extremely reassuring to read that, that business manifesto hmm. and feel like, man, we're really on the right track. And, and we don't need to adjust course very much because my natural inclinations are very much the same. And I'd say the main thing that we share um, is yeah a desire to do good. I don't know. I think most people desire to do good. The main thing that we actually share that might be different is that we desire to make sure that employees realize that they are their own person and they are not beholden to this corporation hmm. called Peak Design or called Patagonia. And that when you create that sensation that these are free, empowered individuals to do whatever they want, they don't have to show up at work at on time. They don't have to, you know, like they're free to live their own lives. Hmm. And obviously it's got to be productive for the company. They wouldn't be there otherwise. Um, but that is what has enabled the culture that not only creates the products that we have, but also kind of adds real authenticity to all this sort of do-gooder work hmm. that we're seeing. Do you feel, was it difficult for you uh, when, when you started Peak Design um, to actually follow that how do you say philosophy or, or just like implement it because for, like having it in your mind is is like one thing and then implementing i and i'm going to speak for probably a lot of people i'm just thinking about the concerns and probably a lot of people might be like well it might be inefficient to run it that way according to the standard or i don't know it sounds risky no one does it that way or Like, why should I care about it that much if no one else does in a way? So how have you dealt with that? It wasn't hard to follow. It, it, in fact, so I want, I wanted and continue to want that freedom for myself, mm -hmm. right? I don't want to be beholden. I don't want to have a board of directors telling me what to do or investors that have expectations that will, that will govern my thoughts. I'm happy to have collaborative discussions with with my my teammates and we certainly discuss and debate it's a very debative culture but it's not a um 
I don't know. It's not one where, you know, and like ultimately I'll make some product decisions that might seem sort of dictatorial, if you will. Yeah. But I'm not going to be dictatorial about how someone lives their life. Yeah. That's on them. It's their life, you know. And so was it hard to implement? No, it wasn't because I just I would never want to be a hypocrite. Right. Like mm. I I want these things for myself. I want that freedom. And I'd have to be a real asshole to want them for myself, but not want them for the people who are working for my company. Yeah. So qu- quite the opposite. It was super easy to implement. And, um, and, and, and it always, you know, it always has been um, for the most part. A few hiccups here and there, but for the most part. Yeah. I guess it's, it's good that you have that, that will and, and you haven't bought into the um philosophy of well people are gonna buy my freedom through their work (laughs) which sadly i've seen uh talked about or like implemented very very well in the corporate world where it's more like well no i have minions why should i you know well no your minions also want to live their own life (laughs) i'm sorry yeah of course they do um they should so so let's let's go back i i had a really interesting thoughts when i i saw you actually create the first capture clip and you were mentioning i think in an interview that you had to take out retirement savings to actually launch uh things properly at one point and i i kind of want to dig into that particular moment if you remember it well what was running through your mind when you had to pull out that money and what was your familiar family status did you have kids did you not have kids and how did you basically how did you deal with the risk um and what did you think about it did you see it as a risk or or were you like no it's gonna work out well there was a dynamic time um when i first pulled it out it um for one it was a pretty small amount you know um and so I think from the retirement savings, it was like 19 grand or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it just felt like, oh, if I have to start over on that, not that big of a deal, mm. you know. Um, but I was a single guy at the time. Um, yeah. And then I met Ivy. I met I, I, I met this woman who, this is at the very end of 2009. And, you know, 2010 is where it all happened. Where it all happened, I mean, I quit my job. I started designing Capture in earnest, right? I ran out of money, and so I had to get a job at a restaurant in order to make ends meet. Hmm. And then 10 months later, into this kind of off-and-on relationship with Ivy, who's, I'm 26, she's 36, she very much wants to become a mom. I am very um, ambivalent about that about that decision. And, you know, like, and she's like, you know, her stance is like, I'm not asking you to be a dad. Like, why are you trying to answer that question? Like, mm. um, but I, I was just because I think she was really, really special person. And I wanted to see if I was going to be ready to, like, you know, meet those needs. Well, that produced a very, very turbulent on and off relationship. But I mentioned it because uh, in October, I think on Halloween of that year, I found out that I was going to be a dad, you know, in the course of that off and on relationship. So, I was a busboy at a restaurant. I was out of money. Um, I was just beginning to borrow my first chunk of change from my parents, um, which was for tooling. Um, and they, they still, it's funny, I, I, I don't remember things feeling like some insane amount of risk. Hmm. At a certain point, 
and, and I think the reason is because I knew that the construction industry was there. I knew that I was good at being a construction engineer, and I didn't hate it, and I felt like I could go back to it. Hmm. I think you can always go back to what you were doing before if the entrepreneurship doesn't work out. And that's where the security comes in. It's not from, like, it's, I, I just, you're never going to be out on your ass, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so um, it was that feeling of security that carried me forth and, and gave me some confidence as I went into this thing. And then it, I mean, it kind of worked out. So the bet paid off. It kind of worked. It, it, it worked. It worked pretty quickly. It worked like 15 months after, you know, the day that Kickstarter launched, it was like, oh, this works. <laughs> you know, I had a profitable company out the gate. How, how was Kickstarter? I think 2011, right? Uh, it was. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Did you know what you were getting into a little bit? Did you have like advisors or, or like people helping you on that? Or, or were you like, oh, that website seems to be doing cool things and we might be raising money? I heard about it three times in the course of one week in January of 2011. And it was like, oh, this is most certainly the route that I will launch this product on. Like, wow, what are the odds? I can't believe this thing just arrived. That's great. And then also looking at the projects that were had early success, I was like, man, I'm pretty sure that the capture camera clip is has has like more use and is more novel than any of these things. I think it's going to kill it. And it did. It became the second most funded project of all time on, on that platform in 2011. And suddenly I had $364,000 minus, you know, the 5% that they take coming into my bank account. And that that made Peak Design a profitable company. Hmm. And we have simply we've never looked back. It's been profitable every single year. That's awesome. Uh, which is not the case for a lot of companies who are actually building things physically. Uh, it's it's a tough business. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's expensive to build things. Um, there's no doubt about it. And there's inventory and, and all of those things. But um, uh, we've you know we've also at Peak Design we've never had a budget for anything. And the it creates great efficiency. You're just you're asking you're constantly asking yourself the question: Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And if something makes sense, spend the money. If it doesn't, don't. That's a good philosophy. Yeah. Versus trying to figure out uh, exactly the numbers every time beforehand. You know what I love when like people are calling at the end of the year, like, yeah, we've got twenty thousand dollars in budget left to blow, and like we don't know where to put it. Like, let's just you know put it in some ridiculous thing. Like, what an unbelievable waste. That corporation's just, it's just astonishing. Yeah, I'll happily take their leftovers, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, but I, I see what you mean because I see them come at the end of the year and they're like, oh, oh, we want to do things. And I'm like, you guys don't seem like the profile at all, but okay, it seems that you guys are trying to experiment with whatever you have left over. Um, what do you think pushed you guys above the first campaign, above one million? I remember looking back at the campaigns and actually let's let's ask that question did you have a bigger vision for peak design when you started with a capture or was it just like i'm gonna try just this product i can't say that i had i i didn't have the other products in my with the exception of actually the tripod mm -hmm. like that idea had come in 2008 to create a tripod without negative space mm. and but the roadmap so to speak was not Like, it didn't link up. I didn't know when I would be pursuing that project. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know... I don't think I had any notion of what a second product might be 
when I started. Like, it was only about the capture camera clip. And the reason we came up with leash and cuff was because, like, sometimes pe- people were afraid of dropping their camera. So yeah. leash became literally a protection against dropping your camera. But then it was like, well, this thing is kind of like a camera strap, too. Yeah. And, and, and we're like, you know what? It is a camera strap. And then it was a camera strap. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have it right there. I always have those clips. And for, I think, around the beginning, I got the clip. I always had the strap and <laughs> the clip, mm-hmm. especially on the backpack mm-hmm. and stuff or when I was riding. And so um, I, I kind of understand like, maybe the fear of, of the people at first. But I got to trust the product sure. over time. And now, like, I go leash free and uh, or you want to say camera strap free and it's yeah. it's a big it's a big change but so i'm i'm really like uh inspired by how the, the company grew and and the products you've been working on because i always feel like somehow you are able to take something that already existed and just trying to find oh maybe it's not the most efficient way and no one's really been challenging that which which I think is important in our industry because things have been the same way for the longest time ever. Even if you take the tripod, um, no one had really iterated on designs. And like, I don't know, I can't even remember when someone came up with a different design. So <laughs> it's always great mm-hmm. to see that and, and that change. Now, what what angle do you think you want to attack? Do you want to expand outside of the photographer's community or how do you feel about I mean, that's that's certainly not an explicit goal. Yeah. Right. To go outside of photography, I think that it will happen um, with so like take you know take our latest Kickstarter on um, cell phone attachments, right? Hmm. Like we're going, but you could think of this as we're going after the motorcycle market. Yeah. Or we're going after the bicycle market, or the you know the car market. Like we, we do think that we've created the best you know, uh, the best way to hold your phone in a car. And those things are certainly not explicitly photographic, um, but it couldn't help but notice that I've got three high-tech cameras on the back of my phone. And so we'll get there via those means, but it's not from some, like, explicit drive, like, oh, we've got the Mm -hmm. photo world. Now let's let's expand our reach. It's about developing products that we ourselves want to use and that our customers are excited about. And... It, it simply will grow outside the bounds of photography, and that is fantastic. But also, everyone's a photographer now in some capacity. Yeah. Literally everyone. Where That did not used to be the case. Like, it used to be you had to actively go out and purchase a camera and develop film or become proficient with digital tools. Like, otherwise, you didn't take pictures. Now, everyone takes pictures. Yeah. Everyone. Absolutely. Um, I mean, last Christmas, I upgraded uh, some of my family members' cameras, or should I say phones, uh, (laughs) because they were complaining. My photos are crappy, etc. I'm like, yeah, probably because you haven't gotten a technology that's recent enough to actually make your photos look great without having to do anything. (laughs) 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 So it's very interesting. Peter, there is like a million like ways I would love to dig into, whether it's on the entrepreneurial side or the product design or or even just like your journey with uh, carbon footprint offsetting. Um, but I want to be mindful with your time. So I, maybe we should keep some for part two potentially. But can you like, I feel like a lot of people are, or at least I was in that position. I, I used to be an engineer and uh, just like you. And then 
I went off and became a photographer, started a, a side project at the same time, which was a booking site for photographers, um, which was fairly interesting at the time. And now I, when I look back, all those moments when it goes by very, very fast. Like you say, it's like you don't really realize you take a bunch of risks. There's a million things happening at once, but somehow it works out uh, for some projects. Some others just don't go anywhere and that's fine. Do you have any mojo or like tips you would share to anyone who is like thinking about doing his own thing or thinking of like going into, let's say someone who has like crazy ideas that, like you with the train, for example, like what kind mm -hmm. of advice would you give now that you've kind of built a big business around the, your ideas? I think that there's, even if peak design hadn't been successful, I still look back on and think about the trains, like and what I learned through that journey. I, like life is, I, I'm a believer that this is probably the only life that we get. And there, there is certainly something, every time you take on an endeavor, that is doing something on your own or just doing something different, it's going to represent a different chapter of your life. Hmm. And it might not all be glorious, but it is going to add to the tapestry of your life and you will learn things. You, I guarantee you when you're doing something new, you will learn new things. You'll be forced to, and you will carry those with you for the rest of your life. And so I, I think that I'm sure it has happened where like, you know, too many entrepreneurial journeys will take someone off the rails and, and, and their life may spiral out of control. But mm. that, that, that's very different than the, most people's entrepreneurial journeys. A lot of people will take a stab or two at it and, and, and learn a lot in the process. And I just, I couldn't recommend it anymore. Um, the, the more organized world that people can plug into that will always exist out there. Yeah. So, um, I, I think it's worthwhile to take some chances. You're only young once, but more importantly, we might only live once. Hmm. So take a swing. It's uh, life is built in chapters, and it's uh, it's your own movie in a way. I, li I like to well, what you say about chapter just reminds me of that. Like it's it's almost like a book or or like a movie. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I cannot for anyone listening, I cannot emphasize enough what you just said about <laughs> learning. Uh, if people saw me at certain points of my life they would probably be what the heck is he doing but when you look back five years later you're like dang like those things i learned that totally didn't make sense at the time or i didn't really know why i was doing it or, or like how it would work out it's everything like kind of builds up like a lego but you you can never see what you're building it's like you're putting blocks but you you can't see until you're like fully done or you're like five years later so yeah Amen, bro. So it's it's a great advice for anyone out there. Peter, thank you so much for being here. Where should people where do you want to guide people? Where do you want what do you want them to look into? Well, God. Uh peak design and climate neutral. Those are my bodies of work okay. you know, that are most in just Google them or go to peakdesign.com or climateneutral.com. Every year I, I I think like, should I become a more active voice, you know, in uh, whether it's Instagram or LinkedIn, but I haven't really dove in to either of those things mm -hmm. yet, but stay tuned. It might happen. Okay. Everyone go check out his bio if he updated it. <laughs> 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 Peter, thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we, we can dig into more topics next time. Thanks, Peter. Looking forward to it. 
Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, would you like to receive once a week a free short email with my top five inspirations, photos with settings, gear I've loved, and what I've been watching, reading, or listening to that really inspired my work and my life lately? If you want it, just go to pierretilambert.com forward slash top five and you will be in. Every week you will receive that short email to set you off on the good vibe for the weekend and inspire you. Now with that being said, have an amazing day. I'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye.